0: to open their bibles to matthew chapter twenty-seven, eleven to 26 meanwhile jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him are you the king of the jews you have said so jesus replied then pilate when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders he gave no answer then pilate asked him don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you but jesus made no reply not even to a single charge His wife sent him the message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, said the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
1: In the passage that we just had read to us this morning, we find the most important, the most fateful, the most serious question that could ever be asked of anybody. We find that in the 22nd verse of the passage there, Matthew 27, where Pilate asks, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? That is the key question. Pilate found himself in a horrible, horrible dilemma, caught between a rock and a hard place, as to what to do with Jesus Christ. And you know, Pilate is not alone. Every human being on the face of the earth Before and who will come must face that same question. What shall I do with Jesus? It's a question that faces every man and woman alive, and the answer they give will determine not only their life now, but their eternal destiny. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 10 to 11, that there will come a day that, at the name of Jesus... Every niche will bow, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment, for far too many people, it will be too late. So Pilate asks a question that is the pivotal and most important question in all of Scripture. Sadly and even tragically, Pilate made a wrong choice in the response to that question he asked the right question what shall i do with jesus the messiah but instead of going to the right source for the answer who is jesus he went to the wrong source he went to the world and got the wrong answered and ended up as an eternal tragedy now in order to understand this scene here, let's go back to verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 27, because here is where we find the transition from the Jewish trial, those three, three aspects of the Jewish trial, over to the Roman trial. <clears throat> Jesus has been illegally found guilty for speaking the truth <laughs> that he is the Son of God. But they didn't care because they wanted to get rid of him, they wanted to execute him, they wanted him dead. But because the Romans were occupying that region, they, as we've mentioned before, the Romans alone had what they called the right of the sword, the right to execute. So they needed Rome's help. In verse 1, says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. How early? Well, probably about five in the morning or just a little bit before. Uh, before the sun actually was fully risen. Sunrise in that part of the world is very predictable. So it was super early in the morning before the crowds were up. They were afraid of the people. They wanted to do it as quick as possible, probably within a 10-minute time frame before people came out to see what was going on. And they uh, they were trying to legitimize what they had illegally done during the night. So it says they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Now this brings us to the Roman trial, which begins in verse 11, where Luke began reading this morning. Jesus stood before the governor. Now this starts the three-phased Roman trial, which we have mentioned before, first before Pilate, and then he goes to Herod, and then he goes back to Pilate again. And again, the thing that comes out through all of it and is crystal clear is that Jesus Christ is without fault. He is innocent. It's as if the Spirit of God is proving without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed the spotless Lamb who has no blemish, who is the only one acceptable to die on the cross for your sins and mine. Matthew who always wants to present the perfection of Christ, always wants to lift up the majesty of Christ in his kingship, always wants to show his purity, does it again even in this scene. And the record stands that Jesus was killed because they hated him and rejected him. It was the evil of their own hearts, not anything that Christ had done. And as we move through verses 11 through 26, we're going to see a number of things that demonstrate the innocence of Christ. Each of them shows his perfect righteousness. And we begin in verse 11 with the accusation of the Jews. Now you say, well, I thought we already dealt with that. Well, there's something new coming here. The very accusation itself, rather the lack of legitimate accusation or accusations speaks volumes about the perfection of Christ in verse 11 Jesus stood before the governor and it says that quote the governor asked him are you the king of the Jews you have said so Jesus replied now where in the world did that question come from where did that accusation come from that's not the accusation the Sanhedrin used to condemn Jesus their accusation that he was a blasphemer because he said that he was a son of God. Well, in order to understand why Pilate made that accusation or asked that particular question, we have to go over to John chapter 18. Excuse me. We're going to be flipping around in all the Gospels a little bit to kind of get the fuller picture of all that was taking place here. But we pick up the story in verse 28 of John 18, where it says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonially, ceremonial excuse me, uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. <laughs> Isn't that rich? Their tradition said that if they went into the Gentiles' home, they would be defiled. Yet their hearts were so black and so defiled on the inside that it's beyond description. Trying to keep up the appearance and at the same time executing the very son of the living God. So they wouldn't go in. That meant Pilate had to come out, and he did. In verse 29, it says, "'So Pilate came out to them and asked, "'What charges are you bringing against this man?' Now, this is probably actually the first legal thing that's happened in the whole trial of Jesus. Pilate is a Roman governor, and he comes out on his porch and basically says, okay, court's in session. What's the accusation? What are you trying him for? Listen to their answer. If he were not a criminal, they reply, we would not have handed him over to you. Shut up. Don't ask us that question. What an amazing answer. The audacity of it. They challenged Pilate for even asking the question. They were saying, what right have you to question our motives, to question our integrity? We wouldn't have brought to you if if we hadn't already decided that he was a criminal. You see, they weren't looking for a judge. They were looking for an executioner. How dare you question us? They didn't want another trial. They wanted Pilate just to agree with them. Did you catch the fact here that the absence of any accusation here is another affirmation of the perfection of Christ? They had nothing. They knew their accusation couldn't stand because they knew there was no truth in it. They knew. And Pilate didn't see Jesus as a threat. Pilate didn't know of any crime he had committed. And when he asked the Jews for an accusation, they had nothing to give. And since there was no charge, Pilate says to them in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Go do it yourself. Now interestingly, I'm not sure, but he may have actually been giving them the right to execute him. If you feel he ought to be executed, execute him. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to have anything to do with this. To which they replied in verse thirty one but, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Interesting objective objection because they have done that themselves. They put Stephen to death. They tried to put Paul to death before Rome intervened and protected and guarded Paul. But here they were trying to maintain a legal appearance. So that when the people started asking questions, they could say it was all very legal and the Romans did it. But in reality, what we've been seeing over and over again, nothing happened here unless it was the plan of God, even in this phase. John tells us in the next verse, this took place to fulfill what Jesus has said about the kind of death He was going to die. And we have to go back to John chapter 12 where Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Then John explains that statement of Jesus and says, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He's referring to being lifted up on the cross, which is a Roman method of execution, not Jewish. The Jews would have thrown him down and stoned him, but he had to be lifted up. Had to be a Roman thing, so once again, without even knowing it, they were fulfilling prophecy. Isn't that amazing? At that point, John tells us Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him. And we come back to Matthew twenty seven eleven, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Again, where in the world did he get that accusation or that question? If the Sanhedrin didn't say anything to him, they just said, "Don't ask us." Well, we have to go to Luke. Let's go over to Luke at this point. Hang in there because this is all going to come together. Luke says in Luke 23, 2, and they basically concocted an accusation. Listen. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, that isn't why they convicted him in the Jewish trial. They convicted him in the Jewish trial of blasphemy because he said he was a son of God. But they know that a blasphemy charge in a Roman court isn't going to do anything because the Romans aren't interested in executing somebody for a religious reason. So they've got to come up with an accusation against Jesus that appears to be high treason against Rome. And the only way they feel that that can get Pilate involved is to accuse Jesus of something that is a threat to the Roman authority. And the Romans had a very, very low toleration for rebels and revolutionaries and insurrectionists, which was evident by the fact that they uh, they had crucified a lot of Jews in the past who had tried to revolt against their government. And so they come up with these three Pronged, this three-pronged accusation that Jesus is a threat to Roman security. One, he subverts our nation. That is, he is a rebel, stirring up the nation against Rome. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and therefore telling everybody else that they shouldn't be paying taxes either. He's claiming to be a king and that he's setting himself as a rival to Caesar. All these are blatantly false. He subverts our nation. That is, excuse me, he, he didn't subvert the nation into rebelling against Rome. He never had a social revolution. He never rebelled against Roman oppression. He never called the people to do that. He actually taught the people to respond to those in authority in a proper way. Secondly, he never opposed paying taxes. We know that. He actually taught the people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And Peter and Jesus actually paid their taxes, even if it did come out of a fish's mouth. And thirdly, he never proclaimed himself to be uh, be king. It was the people that were trying to make him king. In each instance, he slipped away so that that wouldn't happen. So all of their accusations were lies, and again, a wonderful testimony to the perfection of Jesus Christ. And that alone makes him fit to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The only thing they can come up with our lies as so obvious that anybody reading scripture in an honest way can see they're all lies. So Pilate calls him back in and says, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? This is where he got it from because that's the accusation that all of a sudden came up. And at this point, Jesus to him basically said, yes, I am. Listen to the fuller dialogue that John gives us in chapter 18. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? (laughs) Interesting. Jesus says, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? He knows. Am I a Jew? Pilate asked. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He is admitting to having a kingdom. And he is the king of that kingdom. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Remember the disciples? They're ready to fight. And he says, no. Is not how we do it here? But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. But Pilate understood that he was no danger to himself because Jesus had no intention of overthrowing him. Jesus' kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom of the heart. Then listen to this. After this little dialogue in John 18, 38, it tells us that Pilate went out to them, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish leaders, and said to them, I find in him no fault at all. No cause of crime. Do you understand what, that, what just happened there? That is his verdict. I find, that's a courtroom statement. I find him not guilty. I find him innocent. That should have been the end of it. He should have dispersed the crowd and let Jesus go. But that's not what happened. Luke 23, 5 tells us that at this point... That they insisted, the, the religious leaders, they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, has come all the way here. They were not happy campers. They didn't like the verdict. And they just became louder and stronger. Now, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. There was no fault in him. That's an amazing statement. Amazing statement. There was no fault. But he began to crumble in the face of the crowd who was so filled with hatred. A crowd that just began getting bigger and began getting louder. And when he brought Jesus back, he should have dismissed the crowd. He should have moved his soldiers in and broken them up and given Jesus the protection that he deserved. He should have done what justice said he should have done. But instead, instead he puts Jesus out there in front of them again and lets everybody start screaming accusations at him. And Jesus says in verse 12, answered nothing. He answered nothing. And that takes us to the second point here this morning. The first point that shows the perfection of Christ is the accusation of the Jews, the empty, pointless, false accusation of the religious leaders. The second is the attitude of Jesus Christ during this whole thing. His attitude and his demeanor are a demonstration of his absolute perfection. Literally, verse 12 says, When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. This was amazing to the governor. He had never seen this before, but there was nothing to say. The verdict, not guilty, was already rendered. What else is there to say? But beyond the human trial procedure part of it, There's nothing to defend himself from because he knows he must die. At this point, he could have still called 12 legions of angels to come down right then and take care of it all. But he knew that the Father's will was for him to die, and he's committed to that. And so he says nothing when they accuse him. Verse 13 and 14 then Pilate asked him, <clears throat> Don't you hear the testimony? Literally, how many serious charges? Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Where is this trouble, troublesome revolutionary who is a threat to Rome? Where is this tax-dodging protester who is leading the nation in insurrection? Where is the king who is a rival to Caesar? Here is a calm serene peaceful man who's literally offering himself without defense jesus confirms his innocence by saying nothing like a sheep before her shears is dumb isaiah says so he opened not his mouth he would willingly go to the cross for you and for me now what's Pilate supposed to do he knows he doesn't deserve to die but he doesn't want to get the crowd upset and create another incident. You see, Pilate was in a very, very dangerous position. His career at this point in his life was on the line. I believe he felt that his life was on the line. He's got some serious problems. Let me explain why. You know, it makes sense uh, the decisions of Pilate here at this point. When he originally came to power, he made some big mistakes. The first thing he did to, uh, to make a show of power when he was appointed as governor was to ride into Jerusalem with a whole entourage of sh- uh, soldiers to show his power. And in came the soldiers, and they had banners, and they had flags waving. And on top of the flags, and this is the issue, made of metal with an eagle, and on top of the eagle was a molded image of Caesar. So, yeah, well, big deal. Well, prior governors had had the sense to remove those kind of things because the Jews believed them to be idols, any graven image. And the Jews had left idolatry since the time of the Babylonian captivity. They didn't tolerate idolatry as far as images go. And the other governors had been careful. About that, but Pilate, wanting to show his power, came in with a whole group of soldiers, all with the image of Caesar, who, of course, the Romans believed was a god. So, here was an idol in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, bringing in an idol. Well, the Jews rioted and protested and demanded that he take those off his banners, and in a power play, he refused. No, he's going to stand strong. And after accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish, as as he entered into Jerusalem, making his appearance there, he headed back 60 miles uh, to the seacoast in Caesarea, where he was headquartered. And the Jews followed him for five days, screaming and rioting, demanding that he remove those graven images, and he still refused to do it. In fact, he then gathered all those rioting Jews, he put them in an amphitheater, surrounded them with his soldiers, and said if they didn't stop their demands, if they didn't stop their rioting, he would cut off their heads. Well, the Jews called his bluff. They bared their necks and put their head to the sides, go ahead, cut off our heads. Well, There was no way he could do that and report back to Rome that he had massacred a whole bunch of defenseless Jews in the amphitheater with their necks bared. Besides, it would probably have led to a wholesale national revolution and he couldn't have survived the situation because he was sent there to keep peace, not to start a war. So he ended up eventually removing those images off those flags and banners the jews got the better of him and they had him right where they wanted him a little bit later he realized there was a need for a better water system into jerusalem which is a good thing right so he decided to build an aqueduct to bring water into the into the city that should have been a wonderful thing but the problem was in order to do that he took the money out of the temple treasury to pay for that money which was devoted to god this upset the Jews so much that it started another riot which he had to deal with by sending soldiers into a huge crowd of people with clubs and spears and swords and this time, at a given signal, he clubbed, stabbed people to death to break up that riot. Strike two. The third and really most devastating thing that happened to Pilate was when he established a residence in the city of Jerusalem. That wasn't that big of a deal. But when he did that, he made some new shields for his soldiers and on the shields he had engraved the words tiberius the emperor this again to the jewish people was an emblem of a false god and they demanded that the shields be changed and again he refused so this time they sent word to tiberius caesar augustus they actually reported him to caesar that he was doing this and caesar sided with the people and told them to get rid of those shields change those shields strike 3 and they had him right where they wanted him. they had control and now with this whole Jesus thing oh my goodness something else he can't afford another message going to Tiberius he can't afford another riot he can't afford any kind of revolution he is proverbially between a rock a hard place and a rock he has enough sense of justice as a Roman and as a judge, a governor, to know what to do correctly. But he's a coward because he does what's right. Uh, excuse me, because um, because he does what's he doesn't do what's right by releasing Jesus because it's going to cause a riot. And it wouldn't be unlike Tiberius to remove a governor and then execute him <laughs> for unfaithfulness to Rome. Ah, but he hears something. He hears something that could be his saving grace. Remember in Luke 23, 5, the chief priest says, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. All of a sudden, a light bulb goes off in his mind. Galilee that becomes that straw that he can grasp. That's it. That's the solution for him. And he has this brilliant idea. Luke 23, 6 says, On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Is Jesus a Galilean? And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. He happened to be in Jerusalem. Happened, right? Right? You see, Herod was a ruler or the tetrarch of Galilee. Now, it's still between 5 and 6 in the morning, super early, and Herod happens to be there in Jerusalem, and that light bulb goes off in his mind, and he thinks, okay, I'm just going to pass the whole thing off to Herod. Done. And that way, I can get rid of the issue altogether, and I'm not going to have to be caught in this trap between what I know is right and or losing my job and my reputation with Rome and perhaps even my life. So he decides just to shuttle him off to Herod. Now, this is Herod Antipas, one of the three sons of Herod the Great. Um, He was given a third of the kingdom when Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Uh, Herod Antipas was given the region of Galilee and Perea, which is east of the Jordan River. He knew about Jesus because Jesus had great ministry in Galilee. We've been all through that through Matthew. He had heard reports about Jesus removing disease. He, he, he healed all diseases from Galilee and all of his other miracles. Interestingly enough, he had never met Jesus in those three years. Because in all of his Galilean ministry, Jesus, I believe, purposely had never gone to the city of Tiberias where Herod had his headquarters. He had avoided that because Herod Antipas was the one who had beheaded John the Baptist. He was an incestuous man. He was a murderer. He was immoral. He was an evil man. And it was not yet time for Jesus' time to arrive yet. But Herod had been curious to meet Jesus. And when Herod heard that he was going to have this opportunity, Luke 23, 8 says, He was greatly pleased. Oh, this is so cool. Because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Oh boy, I'm going to have Jesus do something cool uh, for me. So Jesus was rushed off early in the morning over to Herod's place, who set up some kind of a court in his house. And Luke 23 tells us there what happened. Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. No answer. Why? Because Herod didn't have the right legally to judge a man in Palestine. That was a Roman right. And Pilate is the judge. And the verdict was already in, not guilty. And verse 10 says the chief priests and the teachers, they had followed Jesus all the way over to Herod's. the, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. They just kept accusing. But Herod saw through their stupidity, their pettiness, their envy, they, their hatred, and didn't buy it. Jesus was no threat to him. Already bloodied and bruised from the beating and the slapping and the other things that were had been already taken place overnight, Jesus probably looked... Pitiful to him, standing there in front of him. So verse 11 tells us, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Then in verse 13 in Luke 23, it tells us, back at Pilate's place, that Pilate called together the chief priests. This is a fascinating passage. The rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. So the verdict of the second phase of the Roman trial with Herod was the same as the first phase. Not guilty, not guilty. So the accusation of the Jews only demonstrates the perfection of Christ. The attitude of Christ before Pilate and the attitude of Christ before Herod uh, also uh, demonstrates, again, the perfection of Christ. His absolute silence in His perfection. He has nothing to answer to because there is no crime. Nothing. Again, Jesus is being exalted in each phase of this horrible trial process. That takes us to the third thing that demonstrates the perfection of Christ and that is the animosity of the crowd. Pilate's got Jesus back, and he's now caught in the bind again. He could have ended it the first time. He could have, certainly should have, ended it the second time after seeing Herod. Why is he bringing it back then to them again? Because he's trapped. He knows that he can't just defy the people without a riot, because a riot could be fatal to his career, could perhaps be fatal to him, to his own life. So he comes up with another idea. The first one of sending him to Herod didn't work. Verse 15, Now, it was a governor's custom to the festival, at the festival of Passover we're talking about, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. You see, as a concession to a conquering people, the Romans, as an act of kindness and goodness, at the Passover the governor would annually release a prisoner. It was a way of showing mercy to his conquered people. And the people would actually call out for the release of a prisoner when it came to the Passover time. And it dawns on Pilate that he's got somebody in prison. He's got somebody in in hand. Verse 16 says, a well-known prisoner whose name is Barabbas. Not just any old prisoner. He was well-known, infamous, notorious. We don't know a lot about the man, but John tells us that he was a robber and a plunderer. Mark tells us that he was an insurrectionist and had actually committed murder during an insurrection. So he must have been a threat to both the Jews and the Romans, an actual threat to the safety of the Jewish people. And because of this, he's actually been sentenced to be crucified, and perhaps the very one who should have been on the cross that Jesus died on. Jesus very literally took Barabbas' place on the cross, I believe. So Pilate sees an out, brilliant idea. He sees the idea of giving them an option between Barabbas and Jesus. Verse 17 So, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, So, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? Do you want your anointed one, your Messiah, or do you want Barabbas, a horrible criminal? So, what's he doing here? He knows who the leaders will choose, no doubt. But I think what he had in mind is pitting the leaders against the people, because he knows the popularity of Jesus among the people. Remember, this is Friday, and just a few days ago, Monday, the people were thrilled and shouting about the Messiah triumphantly entering entering into Jerusalem. Pilate had heard all about that. He knew the people loved him for all the miracles that he did, the people who were always so amazed at Jesus' teachings. So I think his object is to pit the people against the leaders. And the, the, the morning is, is, is dawning, and the people are starting to starting to gather from all the uh, ruckus that's been going on between Pilate and Herod, and Herod back to Pilate again. People are getting woken up. They're coming out. What in the world's going on? It's only 6 in the morning. John 19, 14 tells us it was six, the sixth hour, which is... 6 a.m. So he sees the crowd and he knows that the leaders will want Jesus crucified, but surely the people will want Jesus released when given this choice. After all, he is their hero. Matthew tells us that Pilate knew what the motivation of the Jewish leaders was in verse 18. It says, quote, For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. He saw through all of that see, the Jewish leadership wanted to maintain control and continue to reap money off of the people. Jesus was a threat to that. So out of self-interest, they had to get rid of him. In today's vernacular, they had to cancel him. And so by yelling and screaming and accusing and, and threatening riots, they were trying to cancel him and get rid of him because they had nothing. They couldn't speak to the issues. They couldn't speak to the accusations. They just got louder. But the people didn't have that motive. The people didn't have that motive. Jesus had been there, had actually made their lives better, and it was actually giving them hope. So he figured he had a good way out, but then something very interesting happened right at that moment. And I think it was a divine intervention by God. In verse 19, there was an interruption that took place. And we're going to come back and explore that interruption next week a little bit. But it was his wife who interrupted him. And he went to turn to pay attention to what she had to say. And verse 20 says, by the time he turned back to the people, quote, the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. And I am convinced that God divinely intervened a pause to give time for the leaders to stir up the crowd against Jesus because it was, a, it was a plan of God, right, that Jesus die. He had to. And Pilate's plan might have worked pitting the two together. People were still fairly enamored with Jesus, but they were obviously able to be convinced. Now, why were the people so easily convinced? I think part of it was that they had sought a Messiah, and they thought he was the Messiah who would come. And what was their hope? That he would overthrow Rome. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. In fact, here was Rome saying, the man has no fault. We don't see any threat in him. Could anyone that Pilate approved of truly be the Messiah then? And after all, Jesus had attacked the temple hadn't attacked Rome. So the leaders used whatever leverage they could gain and moved through the crowd. These were the religious leaders. They moved through the crowd. Mark says they they stirred them up or incited the crowd to bring about the destruction of Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted him executed. And it says in verse 20, uh, or as it says in verse 20, by the time Pilate comes back from the little sidebar with his wife, he's got a problem on his hands. Because the crowd and the leaders had become one. In verse 21, we're told that the governor went back out and asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. And I think he was genuinely shocked. He had underestimated the power of the leaders. He had underestimated the fickle hearts of the people, or perhaps overestimated their fickle hearts. But, you know, besides all that, he didn't know God's plan. He couldn't have overruled God's plan anyway. I believe in stunned amazement, Pilate then asked, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all answered, Crucify Him. We need to stop there this morning. We're going to come back to that question and that answer next week. That's a haunting question and a shocking answer. A question that every person needs to consider. But right now, my question is, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, this is a time for you to do that, to respond. Because sooner or later, each one of us, each one of us will have to answer that question, what will you do with Jesus? Pilate condemned him. The crowd accused him. Herod mocked him. Judas betrayed Him. Peter denied Him. What are you going to do? If you reject Him, if you refuse Him, if you rebel against Him, if you deny Him, if you ignore Him, you crucify Him. You crucify Him in your heart. The right thing to do is to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you haven't already done that, I would invite you To do that in your heart this morning, the one who came to die for you, to take away our sin, to give us eternal life, his arms are open now. It's not too late. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and and burdened. I will do what? I will give you rest. I will give you eternal life. This morning, instead of closing in a song, having the worship team come and sing a closing song, I want to read you the verses the verses of an old hymn written by A.B. Simpson, written back in 1905, 117 years ago. I was talking to my mom about the message that I was preparing, and, and she started quoting some of these verses to me. 96 years old. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. i had never heard of this song before in my life. I looked it up, and there it was in the Alliance Hymn Book. It's called, What Will You Do With Jesus? Listen prayerfully to the words. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth a sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried? Or will you choose him whate'er betide? Vainly you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? And the answer is in the last verse, Jesus, I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way. Gladly obeying thee, will you say, this I will do with Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Father, this morning, it's a serious, serious question is a question of all questions. There are so many people that want to ignore that question, and ignoring that question, they are refusing you. Father, I pray this morning that if there is one, whether it's in, in the sanctuary, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's in our country, outside our country, whoever you may be speaking to this morning, if that decision for Jesus Christ has not yet been made, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring just strong, loving conviction upon them and that they would uh, just feel the presence of your Holy Spirit, feel the arms of Jesus Christ reaching out to them and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, admitting that I am a sinner and I want Jesus to forgive me. I want that eternal life. I want that joy. I want that forever with Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do that new work with us. In Jesus' name we pray.